God, we pray that it would be more than just a song, that you are everything to us. The reality is that you are first and last. You are the beginning and the end. Nothing makes any sense apart from you. You are the creator. You are the holy, gracious God. And we thank you that you have stooped down to make yourself known to us. And I pray that this morning, as we open your word together, you would make yourself known to us truly, that we may treasure you above anything else in our lives, and that we may know you truly, and that we may worship you with everything that we are. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, a couple of years ago, someone gave me a book for Christmas um, that had instructions for how to make wooden toys for our kids. Uh, and this was kind of a neat book. It was sort of an older book and didn't have a lot of detailed things and stuff like that. But um, my wife and I got to be flipping through it uh, one year as we were preparing for uh, what to give our kids for Christmas that year. And, and we come across, came across this uh, sailboat. We thought, oh, that'd be kind of fun for the kids to have uh, in the bathtub and all that. And we looked at it and we thought, well, there's a couple of things there that we would do differently. So, so we decided, okay, we can make this. And not only can we make it, but we're going to actually make it better. And so we had lots of fun. We, we did, drew up designs, and we uh, you know, got the, all the materials we needed, the wood and the stuff for the sail and everything else. We drew it out. We spent all the time, and in the end, we ended up with a sailboat for the kids. And we were pretty proud of this. We thought, you know, this is great. You know, it's, it's got a little keel on it there. It's got, my wife made this uh, sail with our last, first initial of our last name. We thought, this is a really fun thing. And we realized as we were working on this together that, that it was really enjoyable for us to to have something that we have made with our own hands. We can, we can point, point back, it's not fancy or anything like that. Many of you could do a much better job than this, but it was a really enjoyable project. There's something about creating that really uh, drew us in. And, and I've seen some of the things that you have made, and many of you are incredibly talented. Some of you are incredibly talented uh, in the kitchen. You make these incredible uh, baking creations or, or food creations. Some of you are really good at, at craft kind of things. Some of you are great sewers or, or quilters or knitters. You've just made uh, amazing things. Some of you are woodworkers, metalworkers. Uh, I'm amazed when I see that the creation and creative abilities that God has has given uh, each of us. And there's something uh, innate within us that, that draws us to want to design and to, to build and to create. And I realize, by the way, that some of you are sitting here thinking, why on earth would you want to make something? We can just have someone else make it and, and for you. Like, why would you do that? But, but some of you get exactly what I'm saying. There's something innate within you that you, you love to design, you love to build, you love to create. And it starts at a very early age. I mean, give, a, give a toddler a pile of blocks, and what do they do? They start putting one on top of the other. Start maybe making a little form of a, of a tower or a house or something like that. Or you get uh, some kids, a, a bin full of Legos, and immediately they start thinking through things and putting them together and designing and building. And there's, this, there's something innate to us that, that draws us to want to build and to create. Uh, one of you put it to me like this. We're, we're created by the creator to create. I think that's right. There's something innate to us that, that does draw us into that, and, and it reflects how we are made, that we are created in the image of a creative creator God. And so as we design and build and create and things, we're actually uh, showing what it means to be made in the image of God. But we're about to find out that God is going to tell us that there's something that we must not make. The second commandment starts like this. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. So to these creative people who are created by the creator and have all these creative tendencies in us, 
there is something that we must not create. So we're going to look at what this is all about uh, and what it means to actually obey this command today. Uh, This summer, we're looking at the Ten Commandments together so that we can understand what God calls his people to. And and as part of this series, I'm challenging you, us together as a church, to memorize the Ten Commandments because if we're actually going to obey them, that means that we have to actually know them. So uh, some of you, I know, are starting to memorize these. Uh, We're going to start the service by actually reciting these together. If you have it memorized, you can just say it from memory. If you don't have it memorized, uh, it's up on the screen behind me. So we're doing uh, the prelude and the first uh, command this morning. So it's Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. Let's say it together. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So we move from the prologue and the first command now to the second command. We're going to look at the commandment itself, what is being prohibited, and then we're going to look at the reason that God gives for giving this commandment. So first, the commandment itself. What is God um, telling us not to do? Exodus chapter 20. And by the way, if you haven't turned there in your Bible, this would be a good time uh, to do that. Exodus chapter 20, and we'll be in verses 4 through 6 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 74, uh, right near the beginning. So what is the command that God is giving to his people? Exodus 20, verse 4, and the first part of verse 5. God says this, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them, or worship them. So this is the, the negatively uh, put command. There, there are three directives in here. We're not to make, we're not to worship, and we're not to bow down. In other words, images are to have no part in how God's people worship. This is a really important thing for the people of Israel to hear in their day because everyone around them, every other people group around them, worship their gods through some sort of image. So for them to actually obey this command and worship God apart from physical images and things like that would have been a radically countercultural move. And really, that's one of the reasons it's so important for Israel to actually obey this. It sets the true God, their God, apart from the other gods that the people around them worshipped. Israel's prophets consistently kind of make fun of the other, uh, the way that people around them worship, right? In Isaiah 44, Isaiah says, well, look at this. They take a tree and they cut it down, And half of the tree they chop up into firewood and make a fire and cook their dinner. But they take the other half of the same tree and they carve it into some sort of image and then they bow down to the image. Half the tree they're chopping up for firewood, half they're making into a god and bowing down to that god. This doesn't make any sense at all. See, the problem is that an an idol implies a very different kind of god than the god who's revealed in the Bible. I mean, first of all, an idol is created by human hands, right? That's why God says, don't make for yourselves. So an idol, an image, is something that that human hands have created. And further, it implies needs. You've got to dust them off and take care of them and stuff like that. And the people around Israel would would put meals, food, in front of these idols. They were feeding the gods as if the god might uh, need some kind of sustenance. But of course, the food would just go bad and go stale and rot. But they thought they were doing the God some kind of favor. So it's created by human hands. It implies some sort of need. And then it, it allows you to control it. And this was kind of the draw of idols. You could pick it up. You could move it around. You could kind of uh, hope that it would do certain things for you. But this is a very different kind of God than the people of Israel are called to worship. They're called to worship uh, Yahweh. This is the name of Israel's God, Yahweh, the true God. That's the God that, that we worship, that Christians worship today. 
And, and let's be clear on this. It's not just that Israel shouldn't worship images of other gods. That's definitely true. They shouldn't uh, worship the, the gods of the nations around them, like Baal and the other uh, kind of image-related gods. But it's, they can't even make images that are supposed to look like Yahweh. That's important, too, because if you make an, a, an image of Yahweh, you're not going to catch all the nuance of who he is, and you're going to start to think of him in skewed terms. So if, if you can worship the true God, Yahweh, like the other people around Israel worship their supposed gods, then you're going to start thinking about the true God like those nations think about their gods. And this is exactly what happens very shortly in Israel's history. Look uh, later on in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 32, uh, Moses goes back up the mountain to hear from God, and the people start to get worried. He's up there a long time, and there's, we don't know what happened to him. So they tell Moses' brother Aaron, well, make us a God that we can worship and follow. In other words, give us something tangible so we can direct our worship toward it, and we can kind of go from there. And so Aaron bows to the pressure, and this is what he says. He makes this golden calf. The people of Israel say, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And then Aaron says this, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, a festival to Yahweh. So do you see what's happening here? The people are, are kind of connecting this golden calf, this image that they've made, to the true God. That they're using terms that, that are only true of God. God is the one, Yahweh is the one who brought them out of Egypt. That's why at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, like we just recited together, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And now the people are saying this golden calf is associated with that God. And Aaron, Moses' brother, is saying, well, let's hold a festival to the true God, to Yahweh himself, trying to worship God through this golden image. But what ends up happening? The whole thing turns into this kind of this, this drunk orgy, because if you think about God in terms of, of a bull, then you think in terms of power, and you think in terms of potency. You don't think about things like purity and holiness. So if you're going to worship a God who's all about power and potency, you don't have to worry too much about morals. And so they get drunk, they have this big orgy, and it just turns into a mess. I mean, that's what happens when you try to worship God with images. The, the images draw us in, into worshiping an imagination of God rather than God who's actually revealed to us. And, and you and I are tempted to do the same thing. Most of us, I'm guessing, haven't made an actual physical image or a painting and said, this is God, I'm going to bow down to this thing. But we're just as tempted to follow our imagined God or our, our supposition of what God might be like rather than worshiping the God who reveals himself in the Bible. There was a study in um, Britain a number of years ago that uh, went around and asked people this question. Do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of affairs, who performs miracles, etc.? So they're asking all these people these description of, of God as revealed in the Bible. Does he actually intervene in human history? And this is uh, what one man says, and this was a typical response in Britain. No, I don't believe in that God. I just believe in the ordinary God. So do you see what he's done? He's taken the God re that's revealed in the Bible and said, okay, well, that's, that's a little bit too much for me, so I'm going to trade the true God for a God that he has made up himself, a mental image or an understanding of God. And we do the same thing in the States, too, of course, right? Uh, there was a big study that was conducted um, a couple years ago uh, that looked at the actual religious beliefs of American teenagers. Uh, this was my generation, so I guess it was you know, probably 10 years ago uh, at this point. But the researchers called their findings that the actual religion of uh, American teens, they called moralistic therapeutic deism. 
not Christianity, moralistic therapeutic deism. The God that they believed in wasn't Yahweh of the Bible, the true God of Israel. The God that they believed in was uh, described as kind of a uh, divine butler and cosmic therapist. Someone who's there to kind of lend a listening ear and kind of hear you out. And it's all about your needs and your desires. You can ask this God for things and God will listen to you. And it's really kind of a a neat deal for people. But what what have we done? We've traded the true God for an idea about God that we've made up. We've made for ourselves a mental image of God and we bowed to that thing rather than bowing to the true God. And it's really just a continuation of what Thomas Jefferson did a couple hundred years ago. You, you take the Bible, you cut out the parts you don't like, you paste together the remaining parts that you do like, and suddenly he gets to publish the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. No supernatural stuff, not too much about ethics and morality, not too, nothing at all about God or Jesus being the Son of God. It's a self-constructed God, right? You get to make your own God. And most of us, of course, are, are too pious to actually do that, admit to doing that, but the tendency is just the same. There's a great um, caution from J.I. Packer. Listen to this. He says, if imagination leads our thoughts about God, we too shall go astray. No statement starting, this is how I like to think of God, should ever be trusted. An imagined God will always be quite imaginary and unreal. Exactly, right? I mean, most of us have this is how I like to think about God. These are the attributes of God or, or the nature of God that I like to think about, and I like to emphasize those things. But anytime you're, you're uh, imagining who God might be, it's just your imagination. It's not real. It might not line up with who the true God is at all. You're worshiping a mental image of God rather than God himself. And really, our problem is the same thing that Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter 1. He talks about this is the problem with humanity. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. This is what happened in Israel's day. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. See, this is the tendency of the human heart, to make up our own ideas about God. But what the Bible says about that is that is worshipping, then, a false god. It's not actually worshipping the God of the Bible. And the result of that is that God gives us over to the things that we're worshipping. He allows us to worship them and chase after them, and sooner or later we're going to discover that those things are empty and they will destroy us. I mean, that's really what's at stake here. God doesn't want us to make images and worship those things because we need to worship God as he really is and as he really wants to be worshipped, not as we imagine him to maybe be and not as we maybe want to worship him. There is a true God who has shown himself to us truly and worshiping him and him alone matters. Now, if you really want to find out how you might be misconceiving of God, I want to give you a very practical uh, application today for finding these areas out. It's very simple, and you already know it. It's read the Bible. Now, I know when you come to church, you want some kind of application that's new and exciting and fancy, right? I'm not going to give you a new, exciting, fancy things because, frankly, that's one of the ways that we get into trouble. If I give you something that's kind of like, you know, oh, that's a really interesting new thought, well, that's probably not a good thought if it's an interesting new thought. 
right? We need to be constantly refined in our understanding of God by a true and reliable source. God has given us his word in Scripture so that we could actually know him. So it's a very simple application, and most of us already know that we should be doing this, but if we want to, have, uh, to, if we want to actually obey the second command, to not make any images of God and worship those things, not even mental images of God and worship those, if we want to worship the true God only, then we have to actually find out who he is. We have to read the Bible. And here's the thing. Many of us will be shocked at some of the stuff we read in the Bible. I remember when I was in college, my mom and I were talking about Jesus and um, because this is what we do. This is all I do is talk about Jesus, right? We talk about Jesus all the time. But I, I realized that I had been thinking of him as, um, I don't know, kind of an inspirational uh, speaker, always a kind word and stuff like that. And then she brought up the fact that Jesus took out a whip and started driving people and cattle out of the temple. And at first, honestly, I didn't believe her. I'm like, that can't be in the Bible. So I actually went back and found the passage, and it turns out Jesus really did that. And then you start reading some of the things that Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day, and you think, okay, well, I guess my concept of Jesus has to be reformed by what the Bible actually says about him. You might find some passages that are very surprising to you, that are shocking to you, and, and maybe some passages that you don't really like. But that's because our understanding of God has been misshapen and needs to be reformed and reshaped by Scripture. And one of the reasons that we prioritize the Bible so much is because it brings us back to actually true knowledge of the true God. We are always tempted to make up our own ideas about God and kind of our imagination of what he might be like. So our concept of God always has to be reformed by Scripture itself. If you're a new follower of Jesus, this is incredibly important for you because you're going to have lots of ideas about God. You will have heard lots of stuff through your life about God. Most of those have nothing to do with what the Bible actually says. So if you're a new believer, get into God's Word. Find out who He actually is. Let me give you a starting point if you don't know. Start with a book, uh, the book of um, Mark, the Gospel of Mark. and Just write down everything it says about God, everything it says about Jesus. It's a great starting point. And if you're not yet a follower of God, if you don't yet know who Jesus is and worship him, I challenge you to do the same. Don't rely on what people tell you they think about God. Rely on what the Bible actually says about God. And then you can actually make a true decision based on the true facts of who God actually is. And if you are a longtime Christian, you want to grow in your faith, that's how you do it, right? It comes from actually knowing God, discovering who he is. That's where real life change happens. So it's not a very fancy application, but there it is. Read your Bible. That's how you uh, can actually obey the second command. Okay, so the the second commandment, don't make images. That's the prohibition. Why does God give this command? Let's look at the reason for the command. Verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Here's the reason. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So did you catch the stated reason there? For I am a jealous God. The reason that that God states for giving this command is that he is jealous. Now here's where we have to stop, right? Because most often in our culture, jealousy is used as a negative word. I don't remember outside of Christian circles at time I've heard the word jealousy used in a positive sense. We just don't think in those terms. We have to understand that that God's jealousy is actually good. It's actually right. It's about God demanding an exclusive relationship with us, his people, because that is what is best for us. So think about it like this. Let's say I went up to my wife, Emily, and told her, you know, 
I think I'm going to start dating some other women because I think that would be best for our relationship. I think that will really strengthen us and bring us together, and it's going, to be, it's going to be a really good thing. Now, what is my wife going to say? Is she going to say, that's a wonderful idea. I think that really will strengthen our relationship. I've been hoping that you would do this. This is a wonderful thing. Well, no, of course not. She's going to respond with jealousy. And that jealousy is not a bad jealousy. It is her right to be jealous. In fact, it is her responsibility to be jealous. She should be jealous because God has created us to be together. A marriage works best when it is a husband and a wife exclusively together in that one flesh relationship. I mean, that's God's design from the very beginning, right? Uh, Look at the end of Genesis 2, and God creates man, and he creates woman for the man, and it says at the end that the two become one flesh. And that's what Jesus points back to. He says, this is what marriage is about. It's about one man and one woman joining together and becoming one flesh. That's the foundation for biblical marriage. So despite these uh, kind of attempts to, uh, at kind of changing what the marriage relationship might be like, so back in the day where, where polygamy, and that's still practiced in some cultures now, uh, polygamy is an, an attempt to kind of look at something beyond the one man, one woman relationship, right? Despite those attempts, despite things like, uh, I don't know if you've heard about open marriages, each partner agrees that they can have other romantic relationships uh, apart from their uh, marriage relationship. Like despite all of our kind of frontiering and blazing new paths here, it doesn't work out. What works best for a marriage is for a husband and a wife to be exclusively committed to one another. And whatever we might think about what marriage might be, that's what it really is from a biblical perspective. And if, if you don't have that, if you bring in a third person or a fourth person, if you're not following what God's instructions for marriage is, what happens? Well, you might think you're doing something great and new and fancy, but instability is going to rule. It's going to tear the relationship apart. It's going to be full of bitterness. There's going to be no trust there at all. That's what happens. And that's why on our, on our wedding days, we promise to forsake all others and cling only to this one for as long as we both should live. That's why we have those marriage vows, because it's God's design and it's what marriage needs to be able to flourish. The good kind of jealousy in marriage is a desire for the good of the others that draws you then to strict adherence to exclusivity. And that's the kind of jealousy that God has for his people. He knows that it's best for you and me to worship him and him only and not other gods. He wants what is best for you and me. And so he demands an exclusive relationship. Don't worship other images. Don't make for yourself an idea about God and worship that. The best thing for us is to worship God and God only. And we said last week that, that behind every command of God is a great promise. And we see the promise here, but we also see uh, a warning. And the warning probably catches our attention first. In verse 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, that's a pretty harsh statement, and most of us would say that that's pretty unfair. It doesn't seem fair for, parent or for children to have to suffer for the sins of their parents. We've got to go back to Deuteronomy 24 and understand that's not quite what's happening here. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. So God does punish each of us individually, But what we have to understand is that our sin, including our sin of misconceiving of God and worshiping false ideas of God, has a generational impact. 
I teach my kids about God, and my wrong conceptions about God are passed on to them, and they're going to pass those on to their children. And so there's this generational impact of worshiping a wrong idea about God or worshiping the wrong God. But I don't want us to get stuck in the, the third and fourth generation thing because look at the contrast that's being set up here. The contrast shows God's real heart here. So punishing the children for the sin of the parents, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, it's three and four generations versus thousands of generations. I mean, God's real heart here is to bless his people. And if he's going to bless us, we have to actually be worshiping him. That's why he commands us not to make idols and images. Those things draw us away from the true God, and therefore they lead us down the path of destruction. God knows that the best thing for us is to make God the center of our existence. Because the reality is that, that we are lost and hopeless on our own. We can never make our way to God apart from him showing us the way and showing us who he is. We are utterly hopeless here. If God doesn't give us clear directions for who he is and what it means to live our lives, we're toast. Remember, this, remember the prologue. This is about God setting us free and showing us what it means to live free. To live free is to not have any images or idols or false ideas about God. To live free is to live with God at the center of our existence, with everything uh, in relation to him. Don't make other gods. Don't make other sources of happiness. Don't make up your own ideas about God and worship them. Worship God as he shows himself to be and worship him as he wants to be worshiped. That's what the second commandment's about. So how do we actually do this? How do we know who God really is and how he wants us to worship him? Well, he sends his son Jesus so that we can know him truly. Listen to what Jesus says about himself in John 14. A very short and very powerful sentence. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know God truly, that means you have to look to Jesus. Anyone who has seen Jesus has seen his Father, has seen God. Paul builds on the same theme in, First, uh, in Colossians chapter 1. The Son, that's Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of, over all creation. So we aren't to make images of God because there is a true image of God that God has sent us. The image of the invisible God is Jesus himself. Those who see him have seen God. He is the image of the invisible God. One more, lest we not miss the point. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, that's Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Those who have seen Jesus have seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance, the exact representation of God himself. That means that we can know God truly in Jesus. It also means that we can know God truly only in Jesus. If we want to know him, if we want to know what it means to worship him, we have to go to his own son, his image, the exact representation, the radiance of his glory. See, this is good news because we don't have to guess who God is anymore. 
We don't have to imagine or make up some kind of deity and, and worship or bow down to that thing because Jesus is the true image of the true God. And so we can know God truly in him. And remember the promise, that's really the, the promise here, is that there is a good God. You don't have to chase after other ideas about God. Because here's why this is really good news. is because Jesus is better than any kind of God that you could make up. Jesus is better than the gods of the people around Israel that they were tempted to worship through images and stuff like that. They had one God, the, the people surrounding them, one God called Molech, that they thought they had to burn their children to death in order to worship that God. What on earth? Jesus is so much better than that concept of God. And Jesus is so much better than any concept of God that you could make up apart from him also. Jesus is so much better than that British guy's God who's just the ordinary God who, of course, then is distant and not powerful. Jesus is so much better than my generation's uh, moralistic, therapeutic deism God, the cosmic uh, butler, divine therapist, who is really only concerned about me, but is not powerful enough to do anything about the real major problems in the world. He can't bring real change. And Jesus is better than any kind of concept of God as some angry ogre up in the sky who's only out there to destroy and judge anyone who's trying to have fun. Jesus is so much better. Listen to what Jesus offers us. Matthew chapter 11. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So it's about that same concept. If, if you want to know God, you have to know Jesus and look to him. And then here's the invitation he offers immediately after that. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is a very different kind of God and a very good God. The true God is on the side of those who are weary and burdened. The true God is on the side of the hopeless and the helpless. He comes to rescue you. Jesus comes to rescue you. He wants to offer you rest and peace. So if you're looking for hope, if you're looking for something more, look no further. Jesus is the exact representation of the true God, and he is so good, so much better than any concept of God that you could have come up with on your own. Jesus is better, and he is the true revelation of God to us. We can know God and worship him truly in his Son, his true image, we don't have to make up our own gods anymore. We don't have to kind of hope that we can someday be smart enough or whatever, clever enough to think of who God might be because God has sent his son. He has shown himself to us truly in Jesus. So we don't have to make an, up an image and we dare not make up an image. So here's the charge this morning. Worship God, not your idea of what God might be like, as God wants to be worshiped not like you might want to worship him. Worship the true God as he asks us to worship him. Please pray with me. 
God, I pray that you would show yourself to us. For those of us who are looking and are not sure who you are, I pray that you'd draw us to a true knowledge of you. I pray that you'd break through all the clutter and all the junk and all the misconceptions that we have about God, that every single one of us carries about you. Bring us back to what your word actually says, that we may worship you and not our imagined God. I pray that you'd shape us to be your people who speak your truth in the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.